Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. We've got a wonderful guest with us today. We're going to be talking about how to become a paramedic for life. And, you know, m- most of our topics here on the podcast are, are fairly uh, straightforward, clinical-oriented type discussions. And today we're going to veer a little bit from that and talk more about medic wellness. And the title for the podcast today, again, is Medic for Life. And we've got... Uh, Rimley Crow, PhD. Dr. Crow is joining us today. She's got her PhD in public health. She is a research scientist and performance analyst with ESO. Thanks for joining us, Rimley. Thank you for having me. And also to help us lead the discussion and the idea really for this came from our recruitment committee here at MCHD. And we have our chair of, of the MCHD recruitment committee, Russell Carter, one of our uh, young, awesome paramedics here to join us. Thanks for joining us, Russell. And Andy is on the board today, so there will be no audio snafus as in when, when I run the board. So you guys will get good sound quality. But let's, uh, let's roll right into our questions. We're going to get some some great tips and uh, info from Renly. Russell, lead us off with the first one. Okay. So obviously there's a lot that goes into having uh, a career in EMS, multiple things from kind of a personal standpoint, operational or clinical standpoint. But I think today just focus, you know, using your expertise on uh, self-care and the knowledge of, of burnout. So really just going forward, uh, when we are discussing kind of the wellness of paramedics and EMTs, it's typically easier almost to begin with what we're trying to prevent and with a lot of focus on on burnouts you know trying to make career longevity can you kind of explain just to the listeners what burnout is and who typically gets burnout sure so i think that um, we all kind of have an idea of what burnout looks like we know it when we see it so it's that person who is just overwhelmed or fed up or sometimes we use words like cynical maybe even crotchety but i think that's really getting in more to the symptoms of burnout And there are tons and tons of definitions of burnout, but no matter what the core construct tends to be in any definition, this extreme emotional and physical exhaustion. And so again, one of the primary symptoms tends to be that lack of engagement or loss of commitment to one's work. And I think um, an important part here is that burnout can happen to anyone and many great EMTs and paramedics will tell you they've battled with it more than once in their careers. That's right. I think most of us, whenever we're going into paramedic school, typically that first semester or so, we, we get taught a little bit about self-care. And, you know, most of us see it as kind of the boring side of going into paramedic school. You know, you want to learn how to intubate and, you know, push cardiac meds and all that fun stuff. But really, it is really important to focus on care for yourself and focus on that burnout. So you talked about kind of who notices burnout a little bit. So who is likely to notice a burnout? Is it typically something we recognize in ourselves, or maybe uh, personal people in our lives, spouses, partners? Who's typically the first to notice that? So I think it's probably something that a lot of people within an organization are aware of. You can sense whether or not your coworkers or your employees are feeling energized and engaged coming to work, or if they are tending to manifest some of these signs of burnout, which is that lack of commitment and engagement in work. Okay. And I know whenever I was kind of in school, this actually used to paranoia me a little bit that I was going to become suddenly super burnt out and I wasn't going to notice and I was going to be a completely different person and not actually take notice to it. So I know whenever I was in school, I'd brought this up to my to my now wife and uh, kind of let her know my concerns and told, you know, if I ever seem totally different, burnt out or anything like that, I need you to let me know, you know, you're going to be the first person to notice these subtle differences because, you know, she obviously knows me the best. But 
when it comes to burnout, other than just kind of pointing out, hey, you know, I think this person's a little burnout. I'm concerned about my partner or coworker, or maybe concerned about myself. Is there maybe a way to quantify or rate it on a severity? Yeah, I think that's interesting. And so I think the first point you made there is good. Burnout is something that is dynamic. It's not something you just have overnight. It builds up over time. And another thing about burnout is it's not like we have a laboratory or a diagnostic test to just say, you know, you've got burnout. We have an EKG for STEMI, but we don't have necessarily a clinical test for burnout. And so for this type of a construct, there are a variety of survey inventories. And so some of these survey items are things like, I didn't feel energized going to work, or I felt burned out or tired because of my work. And so there are, again, several tools. One of the tools that I used in a lot of the research is the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory, which is seven items. And the reason I chose this tool is because it does measure that true construct of that emotional and physical exhaustion. And secondly, it's a free tool, so anyone can use it, whereas some of the other tools have a cost. So, um, but I think it is really important that we're looking out for signs of burnout in our family and our coworkers, but also at an organizational level, it's something that should be measured and monitored. I'm going to chime in quickly because we've used a couple phrases really early on that I hear often in these discussions. And as always, clear, clear ahead of time, I'm an emergency physician, not a paramedic or an EMT. I cannot do y'all's job. So let's get, let's get that out there. But I do think that our jobs uh, share some similarities, uh, you know, nearly exactly. And when we're talking about this, we talk about emotional fatigue and physical fatigue. And sometimes the part that, that seems the most obvious to me is that some of that is inevitable, right? We sign up for jobs that are 24-7, 365. Uh, we sign up for jobs as emergency medical providers. We're going to take care of some of the most difficult situations imaginable. That's, you know, there's no way to prevent that, right? There's no way to turn it into a nine-to-five job. There's no way to avoid running, you know, pediatric codes and traumatic deaths and these things that we know over our career are going to scar us and we know that are going to, to affect us very, very you know, deeply you know, to, the, to the core of, of who we are. So from that standpoint, how do we assess what, you know, what, is a, what is a natural career as a paramedic or an emergency provider versus when do we you know, create those stop points so that we don't veer off into the, you know, into the abnormal, into that burnout, versus what's naturally a stressful job. And I don't know if that, if I can make that clear as a question as opposed to a statement, but some of that is just there at baseline, correct? Right, and I think that's an important point. So it might make sense to talk a little bit about what causes burnout. So one of the leading theories is the job demands resources model. And this model just states that when job demands exceed job resources for an extended period of time, this results in burnout. So you're talking about EMS is a very demanding profession, and we have these intense demands that come in short bursts sometimes, or sometimes they're prolonged. But if we're able to meet these intense job demands with appropriate job resources, we have a better chance of balancing this and avoiding that burnout. So those, those resources, just thinking off the top of my head, those are things like appropriate staffing appropriate rest periods, you know, time off, I would assume non-job interests, you know, hobbies, family, things like that, social support. What are the things would you add to that list? Right. I think you've hit on a lot of the traditional ones. Many people will say things like pay and benefits, but there are other job resources that don't necessarily involve a huge investment of time or resources. So one that proved pretty important in some of the work that we did 
was getting feedback on your clinical performance from either your supervisor or your medical director. Also having some control over your job, some autonomy in how you make decisions and provide clinical care or having autonomy over your scheduling. Also things like having the appropriate training and orientation when you perform your job was protective against burnout. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. I mean, this is a, obviously a very demanding uh, type of job that what we do. And it does have a lot of similarities, like you said, Dr. Patrick, to uh, other just, you know, generalized healthcare. But EMS is kind of uh, can be its own beast in some ways of being a combination of public safety, public health, and then healthcare as well. So with that kind of comes unique challenges. So with that, uh, Rimley, how does EMS burnout compare to maybe other healthcare professions? As you maybe notice, it's maybe more severe or frequent in this profession, more so than uh, maybe other types of healthcare, or how does it line up? Right. I think there is a widespread problem in healthcare, and there's a lot of discussion around burnout, not just in EMS, but in emergency medicine and other areas of medicine. And first of all, I think one of the things that complicates comparisons is that there is a wide variety of tools that are used to measure burnout. So I mentioned one instrument, the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory, but there are lots of other tools that are used and you can't really do apples to apples comparisons. But for me, this really isn't even a problem. I don't think that this is a contest to say, hey, we're an EMS, we've got it worse than the other professions. At the end of the day, nobody wins a medal in the burnout Olympics. So I think what there is, is an opportunity to say, hey, we've got a problem. Others have the same problem. But rather than having some kind of measuring contest saying who's got it worse, I think we should start to do something about this problem and look for modifiable root causes so that we can share these lessons learned and our best practices with those in healthcare and even other professions. That brings up a a really good point. So, you know, you spoke about maybe it's not just, you know, my burnout's worse than your burnout and having, like you said, a kind of a competition on that. And a lot of times I think when people speak about uh, burnout and self-care and our own mental health, we look at just ourselves, but what about an agency-wide or a profession-wide type condition? Uh, Most of these problems seem to be rooted in the professions of the agencies themselves, opposed to just self-care. So I absolutely love this statement. And I think traditionally the emphasis has been on burnout at a personal level or an individual level. So we talk about things like making providers more resilient, self-care, you need to do some meditation, some yoga, you name it. But I think what this does is it sends the wrong message that, hey, something's wrong with you, EMS provider, and you need to fix it. When in reality, some of the research has shown that this is an organizational construct. It's the system that's failing the provider. The system is generating job demands that are too high and it's not meeting them with adequate job resources. So good EMS professionals are then burning out. And I think burnout is certainly something that should be addressed at the agency level. And there are plenty of modifiable job resources that agencies can contribute to reduce this problem. Absolutely. I think there's a, there is like, kind of, as I was saying earlier, there's a big shift in focus on just the career longevity of EMTs and paramedics in today's age, opposed to 30, 40 years ago. I'm fortunate that I came to EMS at the time that I did, that we, uh, you know, most employers do focus on uh, staffing problems, pay, retirement, that work-life balance in general giving us the clinical autonomy to be able to, you know, have a, a happy, happy work life. But moving forward, so let's say we do find out that, you know, maybe we're burnout. Maybe our partner points it out to us or our, our spouse points it out to us, or maybe we, we point it out to, uh, to one of our partners or a friend or anything. Is it, where, where exactly do we go from there once we determine that, that we are burnt out? So I think at the individual level, one of the things that you can do is, you know, make sure that you are giving yourself that time and that ability to recharge the batteries, so to speak, to get your 
resources and your demands back in check. And so whether that's, you know, taking a little bit of time off or doing something that it is that you enjoy and separating the work and life for just a little bit, uh, that can go a long way, I think. And then at, as an organization, you know, making sure that you're giving EMS providers the job resources that help reduce burnout, even when, you know, job demands might be high and it's not something that you can change. You can't change who calls 911 and when, but if you're able to provide some of those cost-effective job resources like feedback or maybe some additional training opportunities, we all want to have the knowledge to do our jobs effectively and safely and have room to grow. So making those things available to providers are good ways to improve the likelihood of not developing burnout. I want to go off script a bit. Uh, just because we've mentioned feedback a couple times, and I do feel like this is an area where EMTs, paramedics, uh, first responders, and emergency physicians operate a bit in the same, you know, the Venn diagram there overlaps, and I've finished my training in, in 2007, so I'm in my second decade of practice, and, and one of the more frustrating aspects of being an emergency physician, and I'm sure it uh, translates to, to EMTs and paramedics as well, is when you take care of the, the very sick patient, you juggle blood pressure augmentation and airway management and IV access and, and all the things that we do and we enjoy doing, the patient's whisked upstairs to the ICU and you never, you, never, you never find out what happens. You know, and you go shift after shift after shift and, you know, feedback is, is very rare. And I think early in your training, you're so concentrated on just completing the task that what happened later, it's not even in your thought process. But as you become more skilled and as you become more experienced, that, those are the things that, re, that really keep me going. You know, what happened, what happened to the lady with the, with the STEMI? What happened to the, to the septic patient that we resuscitated? And from a system standpoint, as far as expense-wise goes, it seems like that may be one of the cheaper factors in, in the whole concept of burnout that would really be a simple fix as far as, you know, medical, rec medical record access for paramedics and EMTs, you know, chart follow-up, things like that. What examples of this have you seen in different EMS agencies, Rimley, as far as uh, specifics trying to com combat lack of feedback? Because to me, when I know that my efforts have been put to good use, that leads to a greater sense of job fulfillment, you know, straight away. Oh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. There is a huge problem with lack of feedback in EMS. So several studies have shown that the average EMS professional hasn't received any clinical performance feedback in the past 30 days. And in the most recent burnout study we completed, we showed that in the past year, only about 35% of EMS professionals had received any feedback from their medical directors. So that tells us that we do have a huge problem there. And I think as an EMS professional, I remember the only way I could get any feedback on what happened to that critical patient was if I happened to go back to that same hospital and maybe catch a nurse who was in a good mood and say, hey, what happened to that guy I dropped off earlier? Um, but otherwise, there was no systematic way of obtaining any information about how the care you provided may or may not have influenced that patient's outcome. And so I think there are some movements to get some of the systematic feedback, and they can be as complicated or as simple as you want. One of the things that is currently being developed and worked on, especially where I work now, is health data exchange. So that is getting the outcomes from the hospital to return directly to the EMS provider. But again, maybe that technological solution isn't available everywhere. Something that's worked well in the hospital setting that I could see have real potential in the EMS setting is medical director walk-arounds. So maybe every month the medical director picks a couple of cases, comes back to the EMS agency, and discusses the care provided, and then ultimately the outcome of that patient. 
And I think that's a great low cost way of just getting some of that feedback to the EMS professional. And obviously, like you said, I think that adds a lot of meaning to the work. I know in my own personal practice, I tend to, in the shift after, or two shifts after, I run the medical records back, look through my patient list and run run down and pick the, the interesting ones and, and look at the pulmonologist note, look at the cath report, look at the, you know, did the patient diuresis was, you know, did the echo show reduced ejection fraction, whatever it may be. I tend to try to pick the interesting ones out on my own. It's more self-directed because there's really no mechanism for us as emergency physicians to get that information. I, I would assume that, you know, that's a more active search for that feedback. Just like the examples you just gave. I mean, if you're requiring the paramedic to take the initiative to go back to the health data exchange and look it up themselves, that may be an extra step in an already, you know, filled day that would be, uh, you know, takes a little extra effort as opposed to, you know, medical director rounds or some passive way for them to get that information as far as somebody bringing it to them rather than them having to seek it out. Do you, do you see any difference in the data that you've collected as far as which one of those are, would be most valuable as far as whether or not the paramedic has to seek it versus whether it comes to them? So I think that's an important area that hasn't been explored in EMS yet, and that's something that we're definitely interested in looking at. I think that when you're experiencing that you know, fatigue and exhaustion central to burnout, that intrinsic motivation to go look up your outcomes or go ask somebody about what happened to your patient is unlikely to happen. So I think that the idea of having the feedback come to you is important and could definitely be more effective. Maybe pull you out of that hole, get, get your motivation back, and then set up a way that you can actively sort of almost actively, for lack of a better term, work out. It's like a, it's like going to exercise, you know, exercise your, your feedback and find out how you're doing. But when you're, when you're down in the dumps and, you know, frustrated and overworked and mentally and physically fatigued, it's probably difficult to, to have that motivation. Right. And then heaven forbid you go to the hospital and you have a bad experience trying to get, you know, the, the feedback that's just going to put you further down rather than build you up as we need to do. Right. It is pretty important to, to be able to get that closure. And it's nice that there are shifts towards that, that direction of trying to give paramedics and EMTs more feedback on the patients that we take in that are, you know, maybe just the head scratching patients. You have no idea what's going on, but they're incredibly sick and you can only really treat symptomatically. As you said, we've all been there. We've taken a patient. Hopefully we go back to that same hospital later on. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't seem to happen. And then trying to chase down the information is just a lot of work that uh, seems to end, end up going nowhere. Right. And I think that feedback can have other positive effects. So as you mentioned, you know, you just couldn't figure out what was going on with that patient or you thought that patient was having a stroke and it turned out to be hydrocephalus. Oh, well, then I think to myself, well, I don't know that much about hydrocephalus. Maybe I could go get some training on it. So training is also protective against burnout. So this can lead to a positive sort of cycle where feedback leads to more training and then you feel you have more knowledge and more ability to do your job. So you end up feeling better and do better at your job. As, as an educator, there's no better place to learn than case-based learning. And if you don't get feedback, you don't have the complete case to learn to learn from. Uh, I would also say to interject here, I'm going to speak a little specifically to our, to our setup at MCHD, but this is going to apply to listeners everywhere. I, I don't, you know, when you talk about going to the hospital and getting, getting feedback and having a bad interaction, uh, you know, I don't like it when the subspecialist... Um, you know, chastise me, uh, you know, speak, speak unkindly to me about my emergency department care. You know, I want, if, if I, if there's a problem in my care, I surely want to discuss it in a, you know, in a collegial professional fashion. And if they, you know, if they want, you know, Lovenox instead of 
heparin for the patient with the STEMI, please let me know in a professional way. And I feel like if Russell brings me a patient and the patient got NEBS and it was a, a, an acute pulmonary edema patient, then we'll have that discussion outside the room away from the, away from the patients in a professional manner. Right, Russell? Correct. Right. Correct. But I, I think there's also an element of how the paramedics and EMTs potentially deal with first responder organizations, you know, firefighters, um, if that's the way your system is set up, they need that feedback as well. And the paramedics in our system have the ability to give them that same feedback. Um, and it, not that they can't make mistakes and not that they don't need to be corrected, but it needs to be done in a, in a professional and collegial manner on, on each end. You know, I can't berate the paramedic for bringing me the patient on NEBS that needed uh, afterload and preload reduction if I don't like being berated by the cardiologist for give, not giving, you know, Lovenox instead of heparin or some, or some other, you know, clinical choice that, that I just need educated on. So I think some of that feedback issue is a matter of getting the feedback. It's also a matter of how that feedback is given and being given in a professional and, and collegial and educational manner. Right. And I think, you know, the method of the feedback, as you said, is important and also the quality of the feedback. So, you know, just getting a USUC or an attaboy doesn't do much for our performance. It's really digging into some of those root causes and talking about how the care positively or negatively could have affected outcomes. That really matters. So just to wrap wrap some things up with some more positive thoughts away from burnout. So what are two or three of the most effective ways to proactively address and then prevent the burnout that uh, maybe we, we're seeing in ourselves or seeing in, in, you know, our coworkers and partners and people we care about. One of the things that helps me personally to avoid burnout is there is a book by Tom Dick called People Care. And I like to read this at least once or maybe even twice a year. And it just has a lot of good tips for being an EMS. And one of his things that he talks about is your TIE-PHI ratio. So the TIE, the T-Y stands for thank you. And the F-Y stands for what you think it does. But <laughs> there's a lot of tips in there just along the lines of being an EMS and appreciating the privilege that it is to care for somebody during their potentially worst moment. So I definitely think that at the individual level, making sure that you are taking stock and recharging the batteries from time to time is very important. And then at an organizational level, taking stock and measuring burnout actively would be important doing that you know, on a semi-regular basis and making sure that you're providing some of these job resources. You know, even if you're in a resource-strapped area, if you can find ways to do things, as we, we've talked about feedback a lot today, but also some of that training and orientation and just general listening, figuring out what's going on at your agency in ways that you can increase morale and increase resources. I think these are ways that uh, not just us in the field that we can maybe change some of our focuses and hopefully perform better, you know, self-care for ourselves or care for our partners, but hopefully, you know, the, the agency leaders that are out there listening to this, they can look at their agency and see what can they do to hopefully take back some of these tips and tricks that, that you've listed back to their agency so that you know, we can take care of ourselves. So we, that way we can better take care of our patients. And I think the positive thing here is that, you know, one of the takeaways is that it's not the tangibles necessarily like just more pay and more benefits will make everything better. It's really these intangible things that we are in control of. So things like a respectful and supportive work environment. So there is something we can do about burnout, even when we don't necessarily have all of the financial resources in the world. Excellent. That's a a great spot to wrap it up. Remy, thank you again uh, for joining us. Thanks, Russell, for bringing the idea to us and, and putting our question list together. As always, if you have 
questions, concerns, ideas for uh, future podcasts, please email us at the podcast email. It's podcast at mchd-tx.org. Thanks, Andy, for running the board. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.